July 6, 2016, the game Pokemon Go was released as a free app on smartphones. That was July 6, 2016. By the end of that month, a whopping 100 million people had already downloaded Pokemon Go. And I'm curious, how many of you were part of the 100 million? Okay, we've got a few in the room. Over 100 million within a month had downloaded this thing, and almost immediately police officers around the country began to notice an increase in traffic accidents. Because if I understand this game correctly, the way Pokemon Go works, there are things built into the game, certain locations where you can rack up points if you go there. They're called Poke Stops. And so when you download the game onto your phone, it taps into your GPS, it knows where you are, and so you go to these specific locations, these Pokestops, to play the game. And so what happened was, within a five-month period, people began to realize that there were some major problems with accidents, and so a couple researchers decided to research the increase in traffic accidents in a certain county in Indiana to see how many accidents were increased because of playing this game. And so these researchers came to their conclusion, they studied a five-month period, and then they did their best to expand their results from that study nationwide. And catch this, this is what was their best estimate as far as the effect of this game in a five-month period. They came to the conclusion that there were 145 thousand traffic accidents resulting from Pokemon Go. Of those 145,000 traffic accidents, there were 29,000 injuries. And of the 29,000 injuries, there were 256 fatalities, they believe, as a direct result of this game. They came to the conclusion that the economic cost of this game in traffic accidents and damages was in excess of two billion dollars in five months. That's an expensive video game. And here's the moral of the story. We're going to put it on the screen here for you. The moral of the story when it comes to this game. Looking down at something that is fake and temporary, instead of looking up at what is real and lasting could lead to a whole lot of hurt. Amen? Looking down at what is fake and temporary instead of looking up at what is real and lasting could add to a whole lot of hurt in our lives. I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our message series going through the book of Colossians. And today I've entitled this message, Look Up, Christian. Look Up. We've seen in the first two chapters that Paul is lifting up Jesus as the supreme creator of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is supreme, amen? And in chapter 2, we saw last week that Paul was warning us against fake, sham, snake oil religion based on human traditions and human philosophies. So many people will come our way and they'll try to distract us from looking at Christ and instead focus on the stuff of this world. And we looked at how in Paul's day, this was prolific. So many people were peddling this snake oil religion in his day, and so many people are peddling in our day in the United States in 2018. 
We touched on briefly how Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness religion could fall into this religious snake oil, this stuff of earth that is temporary. It will one day pass away because it's not of God. We could throw some others in the mix with that. I hate to break it to John Travolta and Tom Cruise, but we could throw Scientology into that mix of modern-day human religion that's not going to last because it's based on the traditions and practices of this earth and not on the things of heaven. We could throw astrology into that mix, humanism into that mix, and just about any other ism you could come up with. And so in Colossians chapter 3, based on what Paul has said about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and based on what he said about the fake snake oil religion here on earth that we don't want to be distracted by, he's going to give us a very practical teaching in chapter 3 about how you and I are to live based on the fact that Jesus Christ is supreme. Amen? He starts in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, this is an important passage you have in mind for us today. Would you speak to us? Would you speak through your word? Would you open our minds and our hearts to the truth about Jesus Christ and following him that you want us to glean today? In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be a good one. Go ahead. So here in the first few verses of chapter 3, once again, Paul is going to give us a very practical teaching about how to live based on the fact that Jesus Christ is supreme over all. He's our all, right? He's reality. Everything else is shadow, he said in chapter 2. And in the early verses of chapter 3 here, he talks a good bit about life and death. He starts by saying, since then you have been raised with Christ. We ask the natural question, raised from what? The implication is we're raised from death, right? And if you come to that conclusion, you're spot on correct because of what Paul had said back in chapter 2, verse 13. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 again. Paul had written, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Isn't that good? When you were dead... In your sins and in your, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Hello? Oh, that wasn't for me. Since then you have been raised with Christ. But then notice in verse 3, uh, as a reminder, we might want to silence our cell phones. Not a good idea. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then in a few moments we'll get to verse 5 where Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So let's wrap our minds around what Paul was starting to say in chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, DJ, turn me down a little bit more, please. In, In verse 13 he says, when you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. The reality is, as we've seen in the last couple weeks, that before we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are alienated from God, right? 
Okay? We're alienated from God. Secondly, Paul said, we are enemies of God. And because we are alienated from God and we are enemies of God, we're also dead to God, as we saw last week. So the reality is we are dead to God without Christ, and that death is the result of one simple three-letter word. The word is sin. Sin literally kills us, doesn't it? Sin drives a stake through our hearts, it drives a stake through our spirits, and puts us dead in the grave. Before Jesus Christ came onto the scene, you and I were not just dying, we were dead in our sins. But if you look at these verses together, it can get a little confusing as Paul's talking about life and death. So, verse 13 of chapter 2, you were dead in your sins. Verse 1 of chapter 3, you have been raised from death with Christ. But then in verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God once you were saved. And then verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So if I understand this right, Paul is saying, before you became a Christian, you were dead. But then Jesus came along and made you alive. But at the same time Jesus made you alive, part of you died. And now today that you're following Christ, today there's something in you that you're to put to death. And you're left with this kind of impression. Huh? So I was dead, but I'm alive, but I died, and now I'm supposed to kill something else. What on earth is Paul talking about? Well, here's what he's saying. We're going to boil it down to this. I'll put it on the screen for you. So Paul is saying that every single person on earth is alive and dead at the same time. You with me so far? Every person on earth. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Everyone is dead and alive at the same time. Here's how it breaks down, though. If you have not been saved by Christ, your spirit is dead to God. But your sinful nature is alive and in charge. However, if you have been saved by Christ, your sinful nature is dead, but your spirit is alive with Christ in charge. Does that make sense? So, every single person on earth is dead and alive at the same time. Before you and I accepted Jesus Christ, our sinful natures were in the driver's seat, right? All of the stuff of the sinful nature that boils down to me, myself, and I, doing what I want to do, doing what I feel like doing, living for my pleasure, living with myself as God, that was my sinful nature, and it was alive and well, but my spirit was dead to God. And hopefully we all realize that this skin that you see right now as you're looking at me, this is simply just a shell. It's just as the Bible calls a tent. One day, this shell will no longer exist. One day, I'll die, and I'll either be buried or cremated. Whatever happens to me, this dust that I'm made out of is going to return to dust. But my spirit and my soul inside of me, which is the real Dane, will live on eternally. Amen? And so Paul makes it clear that when we accept Jesus Christ, that old nature, the things of my old sinful life, we drive a stake through the heart of that sinful nature and we throw it in the grave. It's dead and buried, right? And then Jesus Christ breathes life into our spirit. He breathes life into our soul and our spirit and soul are alive so we can be with him eternally in heaven. Amen? But without Christ, our spirit and soul are dead to Christ. They're dead to God, and our sinful nature is alive. And so Paul is making the case here in chapter 3 that our old sinful nature has been dead and buried, but catch this. Even though your old sinful nature has been dead and buried, it doesn't always know it's dead, does it? And what does our old sinful nature do? It rears its ugly head. It's kind of like the walking dead. 
Our old sinful nature will crawl out of the grave every single day it does this. It'll crawl out of the grave with the stake still in its heart. It'll crawl, crawl out of the grave and try to grab us and pull us back into the grave, doesn't it? That's what the old nature does. It tries to pull us back. It tries to pull us back. And so what does Paul say starting in verse 5? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your sinful nature. Well, I thought I already did that, Paul. Well, you did, Dane, but you've got to do it again. Well, I just did it yesterday. I know you did it yesterday, but you've got to do it again today. Well, is that the last time? No, you're going to have to do it again tomorrow. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, for Christ is all and is in all. Now, starting in verse 5, Paul starts to get a little negative. And this makes some Christians uneasy. It makes some pastors uneasy. It makes some churches uneasy. Many churches these days are trying so hard to keep it positive that they'll tend to gloss over verses 5 through 11. You look at the first four verses, and they're pretty positive. Look at the first four verses again. You've been raised with Christ. That's awesome, isn't it? You were dead and he made you alive. He raised you with him. Just as he was raised on Easter morning, you will rise again. That's pretty encouraging. You look a little further down in those first few verses. Verse 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's really positive, isn't it? Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That's encouraging. This life sometimes stinks. This life sometimes hurts. I'm excited that one day I get to be with him in glory. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more funerals. Most of you know I do a lot of funerals every year. And there's no, no more of those in heaven. Praise God, that's a positive teaching in the verse four verses. Why don't you just end the teaching there, Paul? Why do you have to get negative in verse 5? Talking about all this sin that makes us squirm a little bit. Talking about death instead of just focusing on life. And I think Warren Wearsby in his commentary on Colossians, does a marvelous job of answering that question of why Paul goes negative. Let me put an excerpt on the screen for you. Here's what Wearsby says. The negative warnings and commands grow out of the positive truths of Christian doctrine. No amount of positive talk about health will cure a ruptured appendix. Do you agree with that? The doctor will have to get negative and take out the appendix. We didn't have room for the whole quote and the dot, 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 dot there. He also goes on to give this example. He says, you can talk and lecture until you're blue in the face about planting a beautiful garden. But until you get down on your hands and knees and pull some weeds, you're not going to have a beautiful garden, will you? And it's the same when it comes to Christianity. He goes on to say, the positive and the negative go together. And one with the, without the other leads to imbalance. I should say one without the other leads imbalance. And I say to that, I agree 100%.
That is so true that the positive and the negative go together. And when we try to strip away the negative, the positive is sabotaged, right? Because think of this picture that Paul is painting. You crucify the old sinful nature. He's going to give some examples here in the next few verses. You you crucify the sinful nature. It's dead and buried. It's in the grave. But if I do not talk to you about the negative, what's going to happen without you realizing it is this sinful nature and the specifics within that sinful nature are going to crawl out of the grave. They're going to grab you by the shirt tail and they're going to pull you back down into the grave and you won't even know what hits you because you're so focused on the positive. If I don't warn you about the negative, you're going to slip right back into that lifestyle you once were in. And just as it's true, when someone receives the good news, it almost never happens unless they first have understood the bad news, right? Until someone understands the bad news that their sin has separated them from a holy God, until they understand the bad news that we are going to a very real place called hell if we reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if, if, unless we've accepted the bad news that I cannot make it to heaven on my own good works or my own religion, until I come to understand the bad news, I will not understand and appreciate the good news, right? And similarly, once we are saved, if I don't understand the bad news, that my sinful nature every single day is going to come after me and try to pull me back into that old lifestyle and drag me down into the grave, that stuff that's dead and buried, unless I understand that, I will not stay in the midst of the good news, will I? Paul says, you've got to put it to death. And so he gets a little negative here, but I'm so glad he does, so we can stay in the positive. He gives some specifics in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, here in verse 5, he lists five specific sins. And each of these five sins we can categorize as sensual sins. These are sensual sins in verse 5. Number one, sexual immorality. This is a general term. For premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and other forms of acting out sexuality outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. It's a general term for sexual sin. He says that's part of your sensual, sinful, old nature. You don't go back to it. Number two, impurity. This is also kind of a general term. It's, it's a general uh, moral and sexual looseness that's part of your lifestyle. He says don't go back to that. Don't go back to that sexual impurity. Number three, lust. As Jesus points out so well in the Sermon on the Mount, men, when we lust after a woman we're not married to in our minds and hearts, Jesus says in God's eyes, you've committed adultery already. And so lust is simply sexual immorality in the mind and in the heart. It's not necessarily acted upon physically. Number four, evil desires. Another general term for just having some twisted, depraved, sensual, sexual desires that don't belong in a Christian's life. And then number five, greed. Some translations translate the Greek word a little more literally as covetousness. Both mean the same thing. Greed and covetousness is basically wanting something so badly that I put that thing ahead of God. And that's why Paul immediately says greed is what? It's idolatry. It's putting something ahead of God. So he mentions these five sensual sins. Now, why are we as Christians not to return to these sensual sins? Because they're dead and buried, right? They're part of our old sinful life. They have no place in our life. Lust has no place in a Christian's life. Pornography has no place in a Christian's life. Adultery and premarital sex have no place in a Christian's life. Uh, Evil desires and greed and covetousness have no place in a Christian's life, right? 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 Look at verses 6 and 7. 
because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things. And then he continues in verse 8 through verse 10, mentioning six social sins that are also part of the old nature. Picking up halfway through verse 8, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Erase them from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Hmm. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slaver, free, but Christ is all and is in all. So in verses 8 through 10, now he moves on from the sensual sins to some social sins. Six social sins. Interestingly, some Bible teachers refer to these social sins as sins in good standing. What on earth does that mean? Sins in good standing. Here's what they mean. If you have an elder or a pastor of a church who is actively involved in a sensual sin, having an adulterous affair, having engaged in premarital sex, you know, uh, having a, a horrific porn habit. If a elder or a pastor of a church is engaged in ongoing sensual sins, he's going to be given the boot, right? Right? We understand that. But why these six social sins are referred to sometimes as sins in good standing, if an elder or a pastor is doing these things in that group of six, oftentimes they just get a pat on the back. It's seen as no big deal. You think of some examples, you know, okay, the sensual sins. I have never in my life, I've been a part of various churches all of my life, so 44 plus years I've been attending various churches, and I have never stumbled in upon two Christians in the church building involved in some sort of sexual impropriety. But there have been a few times when I've seen some Christians involved in some social sins in the walls of the church. An elder or pastor that flies off the handle, loses his temper, has that fit of rage. And what do we tend to do when a leader in the church does that? Might pat him on the back and say, Ha, Elder John, he's got a fiery spirit. No, he doesn't. The guy's got a short fuse. Don't make excuses for John. He doesn't have a fiery spirit. The guy's got a bad temper. He's got no self-control. He's got no patience. And so sometimes we call these sins in good standing. Number one is anger. That's a a derivation of a Greek word that refers to an ongoing problem with your temper. The second one, rage, as you might guess from the English word, is an an immediate flare-up. It's a short fuse, burst of, of uncontrollable anger. There's no place for that in the Christian's life. Three is malice. That's when you harbor ill will and want to somehow harm someone in the church, a brother or sister in Christ, slander. That's when you're saying something that is a lie about a brother or sister in Christ with the intent to destroy their reputation or somehow harm them. That's slander. Filthy language. How often do we find this, even among leaders in the church, dropping F-bombs left and right? Oops, I forgot I was in the church building. S-H-bombs. Telling crude jokes. Telling perverted jokes. Filthy language, Paul says, there's no place for that. And I would just add to that, there's really no place for us to week after week submit ourselves to TV programming or internet posts or movies that are full of this stuff. 
As I mentioned to you, every once in a while before I see a movie, I go in PluggedIn.com. It's a ministry of focus on the family, and it tells you exactly what's in the movie. I'll tell you, there's 48 F words. There's 37 SH words. There's this sexual content. There's this violence. There's this, that. There's that. And so I'll read through it, and I read through most of these reviews just to get an idea of what our teens and, and adults in the church are watching. And some of this stuff almost makes you blush. Just reading the review on the thing is terrible. We must make sure we don't have the filthy language in our lives. And then finally, lying, as we have there on the screen for you, half a fact is a whole lie, isn't it? Half a truth is a whole lie. You can't just bend the truth and say, yeah, it's not a lie. Yeah, it is. But it's not the whole truth. It's a lie. Like we're bending it a little bit. So Paul says, it should say six at the top of the screen. I list these six social sins in verses 8 through 10. And as he lists these six social sins, similarly with those sensual sins, they have no place in the Christian's life because these sins have been dead and buried with the old man, with the old woman, with the old nature. And I love what he says here, starting in verse 9. He says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. This is so good. Paul here uses these terms to put off and to put on, to take off and to put on. Now, these terms were terms used in his day for taking off old dirty clothes and putting on some new clean clothes. It's a powerful metaphor he's using here. Your old nature isn't simply dead and buried. Paul says it's like your old dirty, nasty, smelly clothes. You put them aside. And so uh, images start coming to our mind like Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He was in the tomb for four days before Jesus raised him from the dead. And so Jesus goes, and he goes to that tomb where Lazarus was buried. The stone had been rolled in front of it four days earlier. The sisters, Mary and Martha, are mourning. Everyone is grieving. And Paul says, I want, or, or Jesus says, I want you to roll the stone away. And remember what, what one of the, the sisters of Lazarus said to Jesus when Jesus said to roll the stone away. Uh, Jesus, he's, uh, he's been in there four days. By now, there's a bad odor. I love how the old King James translates it. By now, he stinketh. You better believe if I don't shower for four days, I stinketh and I'm alive. You better believe a dead guy is sitting around for four days. Woo-wee! He really stinketh, right? And so he said, do it anyway. So they roll the stone away and Jesus prays and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out with his mummy clothes on, right? Do you remember what Jesus said immediately after Lazarus came out of the take off his grave clothes and let him go what if Lazarus had said no thank you Jesus I kind of like these duds these are some good looking threads I can't walk too well in them but you know what I've gotten kind of accustomed to them over the last four days and so he's walking into town and you know a few weeks pass he's still wearing his grave clothes and people are you know where'd Lazarus go oh I can smell him he's over there Absolutely not. You put those old grave clothes behind. What about when Jesus conquered the grave on Easter morning? Did Jesus walk out of the tomb with his grave clothes on? Absolutely not. What about the rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, that helped bury him? Did Joseph come and say, Jesus, do you realize that the spices I put on those grave clothes cost a few hundred bucks? Those are some expensive threads, Jesus. Are you serious? You're just going to leave them in the tomb? No way. He didn't protest because that's the stuff of death, isn't it? They smell bad. They look bad. They're the stuff of death. They stinketh, right? 
And in the same way Paul is saying, when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, we put our old nature in the grave, and we do not go back to that stuff because that stuff stinketh. It stinks to high heaven. Do not return to it. As a dog returns to a vomit, many Christians return to their old life and their old sin, and it must grieve the heart of God. Don't return to the vomit. Don't return to the grave clothes. It stinketh. It's part of your old nature. Paul is saying here, don't you dare go back. And that final verse, verse 11, don't you go back if you're a Greek or Jew. Don't you go back if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Don't you go back if you're barbarian or Scythian. A barbarian in those days was simply someone who didn't know how to speak Greek. A Scythian was like a barbarian who couldn't speak Greek, but he was like the biggest pain in the neck. In those days, they thought Scythians were one small step above the animal kingdom. And so kind of the lowest of the low. Paul says, if you're a Scythian, you don't go back. Slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So in other words, if you have a Jewish background, you don't go back to your old grave clothes. If you have a Gentile background, you don't go back to your old sinful life. If you are high class, you don't go back. If you're middle class, you don't go back. If you're low class, you don't go back. If you once were no class, you still don't go back. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Jesus Christ has washed you clean. You don't return to your vomit. You don't return to your grave. Now, I want you to flip back to the first two verses of chapter 3 because this is where I think Jesus Christ wants us to draw our attention. And I, I went past these first two verses quickly for a reason because I think the Lord wants us to focus on this near the end of this message. We're going to put it on the screen for you. And I want us to read these verses together. Ready? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So here's the thing. It's been crystal clear over the last few minutes as we looked at verses 3 and following that there are five sensual sins that are part of the old nature, the sinful nature that Paul doesn't want us to return to, right? Don't return to adultery. Don't return to premarital sex. Don't return to porn. Don't return to lust. Don't return to that greed and that covetousness. Right? Paul has made it clear that we're not to return to the social sins. We're not to return to the anger or the, the rage or the malice or the slander or the lying. Don't return to that stuff. But Paul also says it's not just a matter of your behavior that's in the grave. Because as I mentioned to you, I've been a part of churches for many years, 44 plus years. And I have never in my lifetime seen a couple engaged in sensual sin inside the four walls of the church building. I've only on a few occasions seen Christians involved in social sins, fits of rage, flying off in a rage, uh, strings of profanity in the church. I've only seen that a few times. But you know what? Over the years, I've seen plenty of evidence of Christians failing to do what Paul warns us about in these first two verses. I've seen plenty of evidence of Christians thinking like the world. And plenty of evidence of Christians prioritizing in their hearts like the world. And it happens far more often than we'd like to admit. See, every Sunday morning across America... Christians will go to a church building. And they may not say it out loud, but in their minds and their hearts, they're asking questions like this. I wonder what will be in the service for me today. 
I wonder if I'm going to like the music. I wonder if I'm going to like the sermon. I wonder if that pastor is going to be long-winded. Usually the answer is yes, so you don't need to ask that question. I wonder if my seat's going to be available. I wonder if someone's going to stare at me funny if I don't put something in the offering bag. And so often, every single Sunday, Christians are focused on me, myself, and I. What am I going to get into it? What are my preferences are going to be lived out and carried out and pacified in this service? And then similarly, at the end of those worship services, time and time again, week after week across America, Christians will leave a worship service complaining and grumbling under their breath. I didn't like that song that was sung there. I didn't like that sermon. I didn't like that illustration that pastor gave. I didn't like that that lady took my seat. That's my seat. Doesn't she know I sit there every week? She took my seat. I didn't like that way that server gave me a dirty look. I didn't like that tall hat that lady had sitting in front of me. Couldn't see anything. Didn't like the temperature. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. And I just want to go wah, wah, wah. Don't we realize that Jesus Christ spilled his blood to save us from this kind of stuff? Don't we realize that Jesus died on the cross to cover over and bury this kind of sin? What on earth ever gave me the audacity and the arrogance to think that a worship service was about me? Whatever gave me the idea that a church is about me? And if you have failed, I guarantee you, I have failed in this as well. I am not without guilt in this. And I remember 18 years ago when the pulpit committee was interviewing me for this pastor job, I was asked about music. In particular, I was asked about a lot of things, but for some reason this answer stands out. You know, what's your style of music? What's your preference in worship? And fortunately, I was not stupid enough to, 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 to give some crazy answer. This is the answer I gave, and I hope I never forget it. I said, far be it from me to cause a worship service to cower to my preferences. And I think the Holy Spirit inspired me to say that. I probably didn't even understand it at that time. But as the years have gone by, I've found that to be true. So often we come with this arrogance. I want it to be about me. I want a service to cower to my preferences and my likes and my interests. Whatever gave us the idea that the worship service is to be about someone other than Jesus Christ. It's Him who is to be glorified. It's Him who is to be honored. I remember years ago, a guy I know stopped attending his church for somewhere between four and six weeks. I'm a little fuzzy on that memory, but it was at least a month. And I came to find out the reason he stopped attending for a month or a month and a half. It was because he didn't like the sermon series. Are you serious? You're going to quit your church for a month and a half because you don't like the sermon series? How silly is that? Recently, a pastor I know had a guy come to him, and they were in a conversation, and the guy had been a member of the church for many years, and the, the guy told him, I'm, I'm not going to be attending the church anymore. I'm going to go over to such and such church. Well, why are you doing that? Because I don't like the songs. And so the pastor probed him a little bit, and when it came down to it, it was clear it's not that the songs were unbiblical. It, it wasn't that the songs weren't glorifying God. It wasn't even that the songs were sung too loud. He just didn't like the songs. And this is a seasoned Christian, and I just want to pull out my hair and ask, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? In that church, I know for a fact that that month, many had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
Many had been coming to Christ. Many souls had been saved. The Word of God was being faithfully preached, and he's going to leave because he doesn't like some of the songs. I can't imagine how this must break the heart of Christ. But it happens every single month in churches across America. And Paul screams out to us, Christians, you've got to think about Jesus Christ when you come into church. You've got to be thinking about Jesus Christ when you come into a worship service. You've got to be asking questions like this. What does Jesus like? What brings Him pleasure? What will delight His heart? What will cause Him to receive more honor and more praise and more glory? And you know what we as a church leadership have decided? What we've discovered? We've discovered there are three things in particular that make Jesus' heart jump up and dance. Three things that bring Him honor and glory. And we think they are so important and so memorable that we stuck them on banners here on this wall so we could be reminded every single week when we tend to forget. Number one, we believe it brings honor and glory to God when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, with those who are dead in the grave and don't even know it, but need the salvation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Amen? That's what we believe. And so we try to make sure that every single week we've got ministries, in particular on a Sunday morning, because this is the most likely time of the week that a non-Christian will come into this building and have an opportunity to receive the gospel. We make sure that what we are doing has oftentimes them in mind because Jesus Christ wants them saved. Some of you read this in the vision letter last week. I'm excited about this. In February, we had six people baptized. And of those six, five of those are millennials between the ages of 18 and 35, which statisticians tell us is the most unreached, unreached, unchurched generation in the history of America. And five of those six who were baptized in February are part of that generation. Praise God, we must be doing something to carry out that first mission that delights the heart of Jesus Christ. We always must be prioritizing that. Number two, we always must teach God's Word faithfully. That's banner number two, purpose number two. We teach faithfully God's Word. Sometimes we don't like what we hear, but so be it. Sometimes it hurts what we hear, but so be it, because we are glorifying Jesus Christ by faithfully and accurately teaching His Word. Amen? And number three, as Brennan pointed out, a couple of our teens up here earlier, one being my own daughter. Don't you be picking on my daughter. As he pointed out earlier, praise God that we're equipping this generation to serve Christ. We're not just leading them to Christ. We're teaching them how to serve Christ. Because adults, you and I won't be around forever. And they'll be leading this church after we're long gone. And so we're equipping this generation to serve Christ. And that delights the heart of Christ to see that. What are we called to do? We're called to share the gospel. We're called to teach God's word. And we're called to equip this generation to serve Christ. And as we focus our minds not on the stuff down here, what I like, what I don't like, what my preferences are, as we focus our minds on things above, what he likes, what he wants, what honors him, what glorifies him, and as we focus our hearts, our priorities on these three things, I guarantee you, church, if we will lock arms and lock hearts and do these three things together, you're going to get a high five on judgment day and Jesus is going to say well done good and faithful servant because you realized long ago that it was not about you it was about bringing glory to Jesus Christ and seeing the lost saved and I decided long ago that I'm living for those six words well done good and faithful servant when we stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on and carrying out these God given heavenly priorities, Jesus Christ is so pleased.
not just with Dane, he's so pleased with all of us. Amen? Lord, you are awesome. And we thank you. Even though the angels certainly could do a better job of carrying out these three priorities than we do, I thank you that you saw fit to choose us. To place us, Lord, at this time, in the middle of this abandoned Air Force base, and in the middle of this ghost town, God, you placed us to do an amazing work. And we thank you for the lives you've allowed us to touch, even just in the last few weeks. And we thank you for the lives you'll uh, enable us to touch in the weeks to come. I pray that you would find us faithful. Forgive me, God, for too often focusing on myself. Forgive me, God, for so often getting caught up in the stuff of this world instead of looking up to you. Help us to look up, O God. Help us not to be found foolish with our head buried in a Pokemon Go game. Help us not to be so foolish, Lord, to focus on the stuff that is temporary, fake, fleeting. Help us to focus on you and the things of heaven. For your glory in Jesus' name.